Hello and welcome everyone to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined again today, as always, by Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. This is the first week of year two of the Investment Trust podcast, Simon, and uh, it's been a very interesting year. We've seen some fascinating uh, developments over that year. Uh, but how has the last week gone in terms of the market and our favoured investment trust sector? Well, it's obviously been a short week, but actually uh, a pretty good week for investors. The Investment Companies Index ended up just short of 3% on the four-day week, and that was ahead of the wider UK market. So the FTSE All Share was up about 2.7%. The sector average discount narrowed in quite markedly, actually, during that four-day period. It started about 3.5% and ended it near it's about 2.4%. So it was a pretty decent week. I think uh, 250 investment companies ended up in positive territory for the week. And that included 42 that recorded a share price rise of 5% or better. 32 were sadly down, of which seven fell 2%. But so far this year, just to put things in perspective, the investment company sector is up just over 4%. Uh, though it has lagged the wider UK market, the, the FTSE All shares up about 8.6% year to date. And I think I'm right to say that there's been a, a sort of mild reversal in some of the trends that we've been talking about in the first couple of months of this year. In other words, the strong performance of technology and then the reaction against that with uh, value stocks doing well and so on. And uh, there's been a little bit of evening out of that, I think, over the last few weeks. Am I right about that? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you can see that again in some of those more growth orientated names, uh, names that we talked about in weeks gone by, the Bailey Gifford funds, um, some of the, the technology names as well. You, you're absolutely right. It has seemed to have broadened out a little bit. Indeed, it has. OK, so let's kick off with corporate activity. We always start with that. Uh, we haven't got much to talk about this week, but there's been a, another kind of minor development in the ongoing saga at Strategic Equity Capital, which is... Uh, uh, been in some kind of dispute with its uh, two of its shareholders. Yeah, that's right. Another chapter in this particular story. Uh, one wonders that this is going to kind of rumble on for some time yet. So just to remind people how we've got to this stage, basically back in March, an EGM was requisitioned by two shareholders, Ian Armitage and Jonathan Morgan, who between them own 7.7% of the investment company's share capital. They made it clear that they were unhappy with changes that had been made to the investment team and also the fact that it had been trading on a persistently wide discount. So we had the EGM, uh, which a continuation vote was put to shareholders. 82% voted in favour. So in other words, it was a vote in favour of continuation, but 18% voted against. So that was 8.4 million shares which represented 13% of the share capital. So this week, we had a statement from Ian Armitage and Jonathan Morgan uh, in response to the result of that meeting. And they noted that one of the uh, directors had actually stood down. And they also noted that they'd been encouraged by the additional support and interest that they'd received from a number of institutions and individual shareholders. Uh, so their intention is to engage constructively with the board of strategic equity capital and they're going to wait for the board's proposals in terms of the discount with interest. And that's in reference to what the chairman of SEC said after that meeting, that um, they noted the, the discount level and they were looking at ways to address it. So they talk about this surprising subsequent resignation of the uh, 
non-exec director, which was David Morrison. That sort of raises an interesting question. Do we know why he's resigned? Has anybody said anything about that? No, not as far as I'm aware. I, I've got no insight on this. There's been no particular, as far as I'm aware, announcement with regard to that resignation. You know, who knows? Maybe coincidence, maybe, maybe not. It's a bit difficult to say. But I think what we can be certain is that that is a significant amount of the share capital, 13%, um, that are clearly not happy with the status quo. And even for those shareholders who are prepared to back continuation, one suspects that they would be happy to see the discount narrowed to about 14% or so at the moment. And that's wider than the um, average for the UK small cap peer group of about 4%. So it's a difficult one for the board to consider which way to go. I mean, in terms of the size of this investment company, it's probably about £180 million. uh, So uh, certainly not tiny, but not one of the largest either. So, you know, to provide some kind of liquidity event may help the discount, but they will be looking for something that ensures the, the long-term success of the company as well and, and uh, shrinking it materially will not be part of that scenario. Does that mean that they've been uh, reluctant to uh, buy back shares and so on? Has that been the case in recent times? Um, I haven't got the data in front of me, but at the top of my head, I don't think they're noted as one of the largest companies buying back their shares at the moment. And it is a problem, to be fair, for, for some of those mid and small cap investment trust companies. So you know, sub £300 million, that one of the, the sticks they get beaten with by a number of uh, investors in investment companies is the size and liquidity in the secondary market. And if you start to introduce stringent buyback policies, then you have an impact on the liquidity. Uh, and I, I suspect the board of SEC will be very mindful of that. Yeah, so you don't want to get into a, into a kind of self-perpetuating downward spiral in terms of size, if that's the issue. Okay, very interesting. Well, we'll watch that one as it goes forward. Let's come back to fundraising. There's been more fundraising. It's been a a pretty good quarter for fundraising. We might talk about that in a moment. But let's kick off with uh, Gore Street Energy. Uh, That's GSF, Gore Street Energy. And they're looking to raise some money. What's the story there? Yeah, so they announced a placing program this week for up to 190 million shares. And the issue price is 102p, so 102 pence. Uh, which represents about a 6% discount to the closing share price just ahead of the announcement that they were looking to raise more money and a 2% premium to their NAV at the end of last year. So the placing closes on the 22nd of April uh, and the proceeds will be used to fund pipeline investments. Uh, and they've got a, a 80 megawatt project lined up over the coming weeks, as well as uh, just supporting the development of the existing portfolio. But an interesting story, I mean, Gore Street Energy Storage only launched back in May 2018. It was a relatively modest IPO at the time, about £31 million raised at launch. But they've come back to the market uh, a couple of times since, but this would represent another leg on. They'd actually raised £60 million back in December last year, and that's already been fully allocated to various projects across the Republic of Ireland and, in fact, Northern Ireland as well. There was another proposed issue uh, the other day, which uh, I think has not yet happened. And there was some talk about how perhaps the renewable energy sector was becoming a little bit saturated with demand for new money. But this is another fundraise. Do you think this one will go well? And what can we say about it in terms? Well, um, I mean, you can look at its rating in the, in the marketplace. It's trading on a premium, probably about 8 to 9% premium at the moment. So that's quite a healthy rating. Uh, I mean, energy storage is clearly something that's captured a number of people's interest. It's a, a significant part of the whole renewable energy uh, infrastructure story. 
and clearly there is quite a lot of capacity here. I think where people have perhaps had slight issues in just the whole general area is where pricing has become a little bit overheated. So we, we've heard that from some of the wind farm uh, investors and, and also solar as well, where there's uh, a limited investable universe effectively and quite a lot of money chasing it. I think this is a very specific part of the story being energy storage. And so uh, one suspects there might be more capacity to deploy capital. So let's move on and talk about uh, Impact Healthcare, or REIT, which is also looking to place some shares. What have they been saying? Yeah, so they announced proposals this week to uh, place new shares to raise about £50 million. The issue price will be 111 spot 5p, and that represents a 2.5% discount to their closing price just ahead of the announcement, and a 2% premium to their NAV at the end of last year. So the net proceeds will be initially used to reduce down debt, and assuming they do get that full £50 million, that debt would reduce down to about, well, it's 18% or so at the moment, or it was at the end of last year, and that will come down to about 10%. But in addition to that, the investment manager has identified some near-term pipeline of investments of about £200, and this is represented by 52 homes with potentially four new tenants. And there's also a longer-term pipeline as well of about £150 million. So clearly, lots of opportunity to deploy further capital. The placing is due to close on the 29th of April, uh, and they'll announce the results of that the next day. And those new shares will be admitted to trading on the 6th of May. Uh, when they say they've identified a near-term pipeline, a uh, significant near-term pipeline, does that imply that they may have to need to come back and do some more funding in due course or not? If they're only raising £50 million here, obviously there's the impact of gearing and so on, as you say. But uh, does that imply that they might be coming back again in due course? It's a good question. I mean, Impact Healthcare has grown uh, significantly over the years since its launch. It launched back in March 2017. They didn't raise any new capital last year. Clearly, tricky conditions, particularly in the first half of last year, but they were they were happy to push on with what they've got. Potentially is the answer. I mean, what the, the model with these type of investment companies is they've raised new capital, they pay down their debt, and then they use that debt facility to effectively uh, acquire new assets. And we've seen that not just on these some specialist property plays, but we've seen it on the infrastructure side as well. So they will have a, a certain amount of firepower. But I think, as always with raising money, one thing you've got to be quite careful of, even if you're in favour, your asset class is in demand, is not to raise too much, particularly for replacing, because then you do have the issue of cash drag. So it's it's quite finely balanced, quite nuanced. You want to have enough capital that you're confident you can deploy quite quickly, but not so much that uh, it ends up diluting down returns to ongoing shareholders. That's an interesting point, and I think a, a valid one. So just quickly on the last two, we mentioned Gore Street Energy and Impact Healthcare REIT. Obviously, these are alternative asset investment trusts. What are they yielding at the moment? And just remind us what kind of target returns they're looking for. Yeah, so Impact Healthcare, the yield on a historic basis is about 5.5%. Um, I haven't got their target uh, NAV return, but I can tell you over the last three years, their NAV total return has been 31%. Uh, so whether or not that's reflective going forward remains to be seen. But that's what they've achieved over the last three years. So Gore Street Energy has a historic yield of 7.6%. So a high yield. And I think actually, from recollection, I think they're targeting about a 7% yield on that particular one. And clearly, the, the yield is going to be a large element of the return profile in that particular case. Uh, they haven't been going three years yet. Uh, they're just short of that. But certainly over the last year, they've delivered an NAV total return of 11%. Yeah. So they're basically broadly in line with the normal average target of these 
alternative acid, which tends to be in the sort of seven to nine to seven to ten range, does it not? Total return, that is, of which the bulk is in terms of, uh, of dividend yield. Okay, let's talk about Jupiter Green in this uh, fundraising context. They've been pursuing something slightly different. What's the story there? Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a funny one, this one. So uh, they announced this week that subscriptions representing 59% of new shares available for subscription uh, had come through. So on the basis of this, they issued 1.2 million shares at a price of 173 spot 3p. So that equates to about £2 million or so. Now, that probably doesn't mean an awful lot to many people. And it's fair to say that this is slightly one of the uh, unusual features of the investment company sector. This is what's called uh, an embedded subscription share or embedded subscription rights, to be more precise. So I think in weeks gone by, we talked about subscription shares. There aren't that many of them uh, in circulation anymore. There certainly were a lot more 10, 15 years ago. But in the case of Jupiter Green, they've actually got an embedded subscription right. So basically, shareholders have the right every year, an annual right to subscribe for new shares on a one for 10 basis. So in other words, for every 10 ordinary shares you, you hold, you can buy one additional share. And the price at which you subscribed is, is set at the NAV from 12 months ago. So on this latest issuance, that 173 spot 3p, that was effectively the NAV on the 31st of March in 2020, so uh, 12 months prior. So this is a slightly unusual one. This is a, a mechanism that was put in place in about 2012, and the idea was to allow the investment company to grow, to provide additional liquidity and reduce its discount. But it does kind of rely on people taking up their, their rights. Obviously, there are some years when you're not in the money. So this time last year would be a good case in point because obviously the market soared off quite badly by March, April last year. So nobody subscribed for their rights. But this year, 59% did subscribe. But that, by definition, means 41% didn't. And they effectively are at a disadvantage via this mechanism because they have suffered dilution by this device. So it's it's an unusual one. Some might say it's a bit of a controversial one, really, because many people would argue, I think, it would hamper those, those shareholders who no, don't really understand it and not prepared to follow their money. Uh, and as I said, it's relatively unusual in the investment company sector. Yes, so that goes the message is sort of wake up. If you're an investor in Jupiter Green, wake up and uh, smell the subscription offer. I mean, because the price is now considerably above what it was when uh, the 173p per share, is it not? So, I mean, as you say, the impact of not taking them up is potentially quite significant. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, obviously, if you think 31st of March 2020 to 31st of March 2021, there's been quite a big jump in virtually everything's share price in that in that time. And Jupiter Green Investment Trust is, is no different. So I don't have the level of dilution at my fingertips, but my, my recollection, it was at least about 10p per share. I might be wrong on that, but it was not insignificant. So as you say, yes, to, to tell shareholders to wake up and follow their money, or even for the board, you know, is this still an appropriate device to have in place given that increasing amounts of the shareholder base are now in the hands of retail investors, often held through platforms. Do they really understand how this works? Are they put at a disadvantage? So that's a talking point, clearly. But uh, yeah, £2 million is not necessarily going to move the dial in terms of how much money is raised across the investment trust sector this year. But it's, it's worth noting how it's achieved in this particular case. We might just at this point pause a second and just talk about the fundraising in the first quarter. We talked about it last week, but we didn't have the precise figures. But it's actually been a very good first quarter for fundraising, has it not, in terms certainly of uh, recent year-by-year trends? You're absolutely right. Yeah, in the first three months of 2021, uh, over 4 
billion pounds was raised. It's 4074 million is the precise figure. And that was over 200% higher than the first three months of 2020. Admittedly, we all can remember that 2020 was not the most ideal time to raise money. But even to take a longer term view, it was the strongest quarter in at least 13 years, uh, even higher than the amount of money raised in the final quarter of last year, which equated to 3.8 billion. So yeah, it's been an incredible start to 2021. Uh, Lots of money raised, but not necessarily through IPOs. We've seen only seen three IPOs so far this year, and that represents about 22% of the money's raised. But it's that ongoing issuance is certainly not unimportant, but also the infrastructure sector as well. 40% of all money raised is uh, into infrastructure so far this year. Yes, I was going to ask you where the money's been. And it's a, it's a mixture, isn't it, mainly? I mean, I guess most of it has gone to alternative asset type investment trusts, including infrastructure. But there's been a bit of money, you know, in secondary issuance going into some of the, what we might call stalwarts of the, uh, of the equity uh, investment trust sector as well. Is that right? It's absolutely right. So, yeah, the regular issuance programs now have become incredibly powerful. So the idea of investment trust companies consistently trading on premiums and being able to issue new shares through the secondary market to to meet ongoing demand. So, again, in the first three months of this year, we estimate that about $1.4 has been raised via that mechanism. And that includes some very well-known investment trust companies such as Smithson, uh, which has raised about $186 Pacific Horizon, uh, just short of 100 million, Edinburgh Worldwide, also in the Bailey Gifford stable, um, not too far behind it, and Worldwide Healthcare as well, 85 million, still proving very popular. So these are significant sums. I mean, some of them are, are kind of, you know, raising as much through secondary issuance in a quarter as some trusts have raised when they're actually coming to market for the first time. And it does again highlight this issue, doesn't it, of, of uh, why it's so difficult to get IPOs off the ground or relatively difficult to get IPOs off the ground. And yet once you've got to the market and you do well, then you can you can raise quite a lot of money. So it does suggest there might be a slight, uh, I don't know, some kind of, I don't know what you call it, a structural problem here about actually getting new trusts to, to the market. I mean, do you think that's a sensible comment to make or is the process all working very smoothly? Well, no, I think you're spot on. I think the most difficult aspect is raising that initial capital. It's quite a hurdle to overcome in many instances. I mean, people often insist on minimum sizes and and historically that's been 100 million, but now you find a whole set of investors who say, no, if it's going to be a launch below 200, 250 million, we can't invest. So you reduce your pool of potential investors on day one. And, you know, to go back to Gore Street Energy, for instance, I mean, it's got a market cap of 150 million today. That will obviously increase, uh, they will hope, uh, on the back of their new placing programme. But that was £30 million on day one, not that many years ago. And yet they've been able to prove their investment case. They've been able to uh, issue uh, additional shares and grow on the back of it. And that model, that's probably a slightly extreme example. Certainly most IPOs are not £30 million but it does show that you can, once you deliver, can actually get some traction. And as long as you look after your premium rating, which is invariably a reflection of how well you're performing, uh, then you can come back to the marketplace. And that wasn't necessarily the case 10, 15 years ago. You know, it was very much a kind of launch and you may get the odd C share, but that was pretty much it. Um, I think things have moved on considerably since then. Yeah, well, I'm sure there'll be creative minds who'll be able to come up with a, a solution to this problem. We obviously don't want a large cavalry of uh, indifferent funds coming to the market, but it, there must be some slightly better way to increase the uh, the flow of what could be interesting investment trusts, uh, which could develop capital, add more capital over time. I think that's an issue which the, the investment trust sector could legitimately say it should be thinking about or looking at. 
Let's move on anyway to some results. We haven't got that many. This has been a short week, as you say, but we have got some, and they're always interesting. Let's kick off with the Aberdeen Asian Income Fund, AAIF, and they've had annual results out. They have indeed. They've had their annual results out to the end of December. So the NAV total return just short of 13% for this investment trust last year. Uh, and that compares with the MSCI All Countries Asia Pacific X Japan Index, uh, which came in at 19%, but actually the MSCI All Country Asia Pacific X Japan High Dividend Yield Index, uh, which is an even larger mouthful, that's probably more reflective of what this particular investment trust is trying to do. And that index was down 1%. So in other words, it outperformed it. In share price terms, it was up 12% as its discount widened a little. Uh, and they were able to issue some shares. Sorry, I beg your pardon. They actually uh, repurchased some shares as well because they uh, they look to ensure that the discount doesn't exceed 5%. But uh, yeah, I mean, we talked about the kind of equity income mandates before. It's been particularly difficult over the last year for global emerging markets and Asian mandates because they haven't been able to uh, invest in those kind of high growth Chinese internet stocks, which have dominated uh, the index and, and really led the performance. But even so, I think the team at Aberdeen Standard Investments seemed quite pleased. They held Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing and Samsung Electronics, and certainly they performed well for them as well. So probably the most important thing in terms of the dividends is that they actually increased the dividends with regard to 2020. It was up from 9.25p to 9.3p. Uh, despite the fact that earnings per share was actually down 20% uh, in the year to 7.41p. So again, the benefits of revenue reserves for investment trust companies can be seen there. Yes, I guess we'll pick up one of the points you made there, which is that, I mean, if you're running an income fund, obviously what really matters to the investors is the yield that they get at the end of the day. But you don't necessarily only have to invest in things that produce a high yield. Some trusts go for a kind of... uh, a bit more of a kind of barbell approach, but they do have some growth in there. So you do get some extra return that way as well. So there's a quite a variety of styles, I think, out there. Aberdeen, I mean, have a lot of Asian funds out there. How does this one compare in terms of size and uh, performance with uh, some of its other funds out there? Yeah, so Aberdeen Asian Income has a market cap just over 400 million or so at the moment. It's, it's worth noting that its yield uh, on a historical basis is about 4% in its immediate peer group. Um, So we look at it compared with um, the other uh, Asia-Pacific income type mandates. The largest in that particular peer group would be uh, Schroeder Oriental Income. That has a lower yield of 3.6%. Henderson Far East Income as well is a very long-standing fund in this space, uh, and they're uh, market cap about 500 billion, and they've got a high yield, 6.9%, and they're the highest yield in that particular peer group. Uh, but in terms of performance numbers, the Aberdeen Asian Income Fund is up 75% on an NAV total return basis over the last five years. And that compares with its peer group average of about 89%, so they're a little bit behind it. But it's worth noting in the Asia-Pacific Income peer group that actually you've got two investment trusts now being Invesco Asia and JP Morgan Asian Growth and Income. Uh, and this goes back to the point you were making, actually, that effectively they invest where they like. So it's an unconstrained mandate and they use... Uh, enhanced dividends to offer that dividend back to shareholders. So in other words, they pay a proportion of the dividends out of capital profits, realised capital profits. So they're not necessarily having to chase those higher income names. And unsurprisingly, they're the investment trusts in that peer group. They've got the strongest performance records. So the JP Morgan Fund's up 141% over that five-year period, and Vesco Asia 129%. 
Yeah, so it just underlines the point we made a number of times. Essentially, in the current environment or in the last few years, the price you pay for getting a decent yield, unless you're in something like an alternative asset trust where only the yield is pretty much what you're expecting, uh, you have given up quite a lot of capital growth in that period as a result of the favorable conditions, particular favorable conditions of that period. Let's move on and talk about uh, something else in Asia. Let's try Schroeder Japan Growth, SJG. Schroeder Japan Growth, they've had some interims, I think. That's right. They had interim results for the six months to the end of January. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of just short of 20%. And that was ahead of their benchmark, which came in about 18% in that time. In share price terms, they were even stronger. Their share price total return was up about nearly 27% as their discount narrowed into about 10% or so. So a number of things went right for them in this period. Gearing was certainly a positive uh, contributor, uh, as was a stock called Ibiden, although another pan-Pacific international detracted. But the manager there is uh, Masaki Takasuma. I'm almost certainly pronounced that incorrectly, but he took on this one uh, back in June 2019. And it's fair to say that over that period, it has been a little bit out of favour. Um, certainly, it, it hasn't performed as well as some of its peers. It has a more value-orientated uh, investment style. But you detect in the investment manager's report, in fact, in some of the meetings we've had recently uh, with him, that he expects that the market leadership is changing, that it will benefit his investment style. And, and arguably, perhaps you're seeing that come through, in, in certainly in terms of these numbers. Okay, let's move on and talk about uh, JP Morgan Global Emerging Markets Income, JEMI. They have more than one emerging markets trust, I think. Uh, They've also had some interims up. Yep, again, interim results for that six-month period to the end of January. Their NAV total return was up about 24%, just short of 24%, and that compared with a rise of nearly 19% for the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, so in other words, an outperformance. Uh, In share price terms, they did even better. The share price total return was up 30%, and a number of things worked for them quite well in this period. They had very positive stock selection in China. Uh, Also, they had some positive relative performance coming through from their Taiwanese and Indian holdings. Again, a couple of names that performed particularly well. And this I'm going to, again, pronunciation is going to let me down. Jiangsu Yangi Brewery uh, was a good one for them. And Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing also performed well. But again, the story is about the yield, clearly. Um, They paid two interim dividends of 1p each, and they've been declared. But the portfolios overweight Taiwan, Russia, and Mexico, uh, and are biased towards financials, consumer staples, and technology. And they've been adding to Chinese consumer stocks as well. So you might ask the same question here. I mean, how does the performance of that one compare with the uh, JP Morgan Emerging Markets Trust, not an equity income version? Yeah, no, and again, to echo your, the point you made earlier, the JP Morgan Emerging Markets Investment Trust, so that the non-income orientated one, has the bragging rights in terms of performance. So both have performed well, but over a five-year period, the NAV total return for JP Morgan Emerging Markets is up about 125%, and that compares with 92% for JP Morgan Global Emerging Markets Income. But just to put some perspective on that, the actual index for both, so the MSCI Emerging Markets index is up 88%. So both have outperformed, but the margin for the non-equity income mandate has been stronger. 
Just looking across that sector, the emerging market sectors, what's been happening to the ratings there? Has there been any significant movement there? There's been a lot of people saying that emerging markets, so at the end of last year, saying emerging markets look an attractive place to go. But have the ratings moved at all over, I mean, ignoring the pandemic effect, but uh, how, how have they performed against their long term average? I mean, the ratings have moved in this year. I mean, there's no two ways about it. So the JP Morgan Emerging Markets Investment Trust, for instance, is trading on a 3% discount at the moment. That compares with 6% on average over the previous 12 months. Look at Templeton Emerging Markets, that's narrowed in from probably a 9 to a 7. So it would be wrong to say that these investment trusts are now all trading on premium ratings. They still remain few and far between. But there has been a re-rating for sure. And I think there has been a pickup of demand and interest in the emerging market story. Another trust which had its annual results out for last year is another JP Morgan Trust, JP Morgan American, with the ticker JAM. JAM today, we hope, rather than JAM tomorrow. JP Morgan American, how have they been performing? A good year. A good year for JP Morgan American in their results to the end of December. They generated an NAV total return of 22%, and that compared with a rise of 14.4% for the S&P 500 index. In share price terms, they were up 21%. So an interesting story, this one. Effectively, there was a change of investment approach back in June 2019. There's various different parts of this portfolio, but the majority was in a large cap portfolio. It has two investment managers, Tim Parton and Jonathan Simon. And one is a growth investor and one is a value investor. And they both select their 20 best ideas. So it's a 40 stock concentrated portfolio but using their particular investment styles. So intellectually, it's quite an interesting experiment, if nothing else. Fortunately, it seems to be uh, outperforming. Uh, the NAV total returns up about 50% since that change of investment approach, and that compares with 42% for the index. So if you look at those 2020 results, unsurprisingly, it was the growth investments, the growth stocks that really pushed on their performance. They had a holding in Tesla, for instance, which is obviously good news and the value stocks lagged. But one suspects this year, 2021 year to date, it's probably those value names that are really kind of pushing the NAV on. It also has an exposure to US small caps as well. And in fact, they increased the allocation there. I think it was 1% or something like that at the start of the year. And it had been increased to 5% by the end. And they also had a bit of gearing as well, about 5% geared at the year end. And the board the illustrious board of this particular investment trust is very involved with the gearing level, probably more so than would be normally the case uh, for an investment trust. So uh, they stipulate the range and communicate that to the marketplace. So it's 5% at the moment. Yes, that's an interesting approach, that mixed style approach, and obviously quite an impressive result uh, last year. The trust trades in the North American sector, which traditionally has been an area in which UK fund managers have struggled to outperform, particularly in the US. The US market is a very efficient market and there's a lot of competition from American funds in that sector. And as a result, the investment trust sector, North American sector is quite small. Uh, But I think I'm right in saying that recently, uh, rather like this trust, the performance has actually been pretty good for the few number of trusts that there are. Am I right about that, uh, Simon? Yeah, so if you look at JP Morgan American over the last year on an NAV total return basis, they're up about 59%. That compares with 37% for the S&P 500. Um, so a decent period of outperformance. However, they've lagged their largest uh, peer being Bailey Givett US growth. They're up 122% over the last 12 months. 
which is obviously um, a fantastic period of performance. Although, you know, to the point I was making earlier about the different styles that they employ over the last three months, which is obviously a very short time period, but it's one that we've seen a, a change uh, in terms of the market's appetite for growth and value. Well, in that period, JP Morgan Americans up 7%, so actually probably broadly in line with the index, whereas uh, Bellic of US growth is actually flat over that time. So that's the kind of premise of what they're trying to do. They're trying to negate the different style biases uh, as and when they happen in the marketplace and just trying to generate alpha from their stock selection. Okay, so let's move on and talk about the interesting specialist trusts. We've been reporting results this week. Let's start off with Impacts Environmental Markets. That's IEM, Impacts Environmental Markets. Given how much interest there is in ESG and all these things, Impacts uh, Environmental Markets has been around for quite a long time, actually, in this particular space. So I'm guessing they probably did quite well. What were their results like? Yeah, they were a decent set of results. So these were the annual results for the year to the end of December. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 31%. And that compared with a rise of 13% for the MSCI or Country World Index. Although the FTSE ET100, uh, and that's not a reference to a Steven Spielberg movie, but the FTSE Environmental Technologies 100 Index, that was up 90% in the year. And they did explain a little bit what had happened there in the investment manager's report. Effectively, there's a large weighting to EV, electric vehicles, and in particular Tesla. And as we know, Tesla was an incredible performer last year. Just finish off on, on the numbers, the share price total return for Impact's Environmental Markets they were up 29% as the premium narrowed in. So, yeah, certainly a decent year for this particular investment trust. You're right, they've been around a long time. And, and actually, for people interested in, in this area of the marketplace, I would recommend them to look at the investment manager's report. They've always got some good commentary around this. And it does give a good insight into what they're trying to do. So uh, just to remind people, they look at alternative energy, energy efficiency. They look at water treatment, pollution control waste technology and resource management. So they're the kind of three broad themes they look at. But really, it's about looking at mid and small cap holdings within that. So, you know, as mentioned, they don't hold Tesla, they don't hold Neo, the Chinese version of Tesla, but they're quite happy to invest in the suppliers to those electric vehicle type companies. And that's their kind of sweet spot. That's what they're trying to do. Bruce Jenkins Jones, John Forster, uh, they've been around a long time. It's a hugely experienced team. And, and obviously, Impact Asset Management is well known as a boutique that's very involved in this area of the marketplace. Yes, it underlines one of the problems you have with uh, benchmarking if you are a fund manager, and particularly in operating in a sector where one company is dominant or makes a huge contribution to the index. Your whole relative performance compared to one particular benchmark may be completely uh, distorted by whether or not you own a full weighting in, uh, in that particular stock, in this case Tesla, as you say. So regardless of whether... Tesla is a good or bad investment. If you didn't own it, you were going to be penalised compared to that particular benchmark. can be a bit of a, a trap if you get too obsessed with relative performance. Let's move on and talk about another interesting, very specialist uh, trust, which is something called Menharden. M-H-N, Menharden. They've had some annual results. I perhaps you can tell us what they do and uh, what's distinctive about them. Well, I'll run you through the results and then try to give you a bit of colour of how they're set up. I mean, these were the annual results to the end of December last year. In that time, their NAV total return, they were up 13%. Uh, and share price terms, not quite as good. They're up 3% as their discount widened out from 18% to 25%. Actually, funnily enough, they've changed their investment objectives. So they've dropped the bit about beating the MSCI World Total Return Index. Now they're looking to beat uh, RPI plus 3% over any given year. But um, 
what they're, they're looking to do, this is a very specialist approach. They're looking to invest in businesses that are, as they put it, demonstrably delivering or benefiting significantly from the efficient use of energy and resources, irrespective of their size. So what does that mean in practice? Well, it's a, a very concentrated portfolio, probably 16 to 17 holdings. If you look at the top 10, and bearing in mind the top 10 represent 90% of the NAV, or they certainly did at the end of 2020, uh, it's quite an eclectic mix of names. Uh, you, you've got Alphabet, you've got Microsoft, you've got Airbus there, Charter Communications, uh, which was their largest positive uh, contributor last year. So quite uh, odd businesses in terms of its mandate. I mean, we put it alongside, funnily enough, Impacts Environmental in that kind of environmental alternative energy subsector. And I think most people would do the same. But it is trying to do something a little bit different. Ben Goldsmith is the is the lead manager on this one. And this has been up and running since July 2015. But it's probably off most people's radar, it's fair to say. It's not one of the most liquid uh, investment trust companies. And, and as mentioned, it's trading on quite a wide discount. Yes, and it's a particularly concentrated portfolio. There aren't many investment trusts, I think, with that few number of holdings. or so much uh, concentrated in just 10 holdings, uh, which obviously... Uh, makes it distinctive. And uh, I think one of the other issues there I noticed was that I think Charter Communications is getting on for something like 20% of the portfolio or something like that. So it's a significant element. So you're very much uh, focusing on uh, one or two individual investments. However, each to his own, as we say, that's the great beauty of the uh, investment trust universe. There's lots of different ways to invest your money. Let's move on and talk about uh, Schroeder UK Public Private, SUPP, formerly known as Woodford Patient Capital, which has been, obviously, as we know, had a quite a torrid time over the last uh, two to three years for all the well-known reasons. Uh, so what have they been saying this week? Yeah, so we haven't had annual results out from the yet. I think they're coming up in the next uh, few weeks, but they did announce their NAV as at the end of December. And it's fair to say it was a, probably a disappointing number. It was actually down 20% in the final quarter of last year to just above 35p. And in fact, over the whole of 2020, the NAV was down 35%. So what happened here? Well, there was a reduced valuation on one of the key holdings, Rutherford Health, that was devalued from 81 million to 34 million. And there were also smaller negative impacts uh, from valuation changes for Atom Bank, Industrial Heat, Ombu, Spin Memory and Carrick Therapeutics. Mission Therapeutics and Kind Consumer, so a whole kind of basket of names. There was some good news, however, which, to be fair, we were already aware of, and that was the, the sale of a company called KMAB to Sanofi, and that actually went through. That completed this week, uh, and they, they uh, got initial proceeds of $82 million from that sale. And in fact, the, the valuation was raised from $18 million to $70 million, so that was the good news. And it's also worth noting that the NAV does not include any valuation change for Oxford Nanopore, uh, which is a company that's been in the media recently, uh, as it's announced plans to IPO in the second half of this year. So arguably, there's some potential upside there. But the headline number, as mentioned, is the NAV down 35%. And that saw the share price uh, come down in the week as well. Just remind us uh, where the share price is now and uh, what's happened to that over the last, uh, well, since since it was launched, in fact. What's, what's the story there? Gosh, well, it was it would have been launched at a pound. Uh, currently, it's just short of 32p, um, and that represents about a 9% discount to that NAV. Uh, last week, it was off 17%. And in fact, since it moved to Schroeder's back in December 2019, so it's 
whatever it is, 15 months or so, I think the NAV is down. But the share price, not so much. It had already been derated quite significantly before that move uh, to Schroeder's. So still lots of work to be done uh, on this portfolio. Though I think that the team at Schroeder's, it's Ben Wicks and Tim Creed. I mean, obviously, they, they had quite a lot to get to grips with sorting the wheat from the chaff, really. Um, and there has been progress. Obviously, we mentioned that the sale of Kaimab. Also, there was a, a portfolio um, which completed in the last few weeks of a basket of holdings which was sold to Rosetta Capital, and they uh, raised some capital from that. And they've used both those disposals. Uh, the intention is to kind of reduce the debt down on this fund, and that gives them far more flexibility going forward in terms of making follow-on investments uh, and or bringing some new names into the portfolio. So it's a kind of slowly but surely type approach here. Yes, I mean, there was some uh, commentary that things were getting better recently and the share price has recovered in the sense that at least most of the discount has disappeared or had disappeared. So the, the NAV is now still around somewhere around where the share price is as opposed to being at a big discount. So that's a positive sign, but it's going to be a long haul, I think, for that one. Let's move on and talk about uh, Ediston Property Investment Company. Epic is the ticker, Ediston Property Investment Company. Uh, we haven't heard much from uh, property companies in the last couple of weeks, but what have they had to say? Yeah, and actually, that's a, a good point that you mentioned, because we, we heard a lot probably back in January, February time, and that was the valuations at the end of 2020. We will now get Q1 valuations, i.e. the valuations as at the 31st of March, but there's always a lag. So we'll probably get those uh, late April, May, when we start learning how their portfolios are shaping up. In terms of Ediston Property Investment Company, uh, what they announced to the market this week was with regard to their dividend. So they have declared a dividend for March, and that's 0.3333p, uh, and that equates to an annualised dividend of 4p. But actually what they've said, that if tenants who pay their rent on a monthly basis continue to do so, they project that 94% of the rent due for Q1 this year will be collected. So in other words, their current dividend level will be 126% covered by that rent collected, less expenses. And that's clearly a good position to be in. Uh, and on that basis, they intend to increase their dividend by 25%. And they'll look to move it up on an annualised basis to, to 5p per share. So from 4 to 5. And that they're hoping that that will kick in from May. So they, do, they pay a monthly dividend. So that will be with regard to uh, April's dividend. That's obviously a positive sign. We've seen that from a number of these uh, property investment companies. And that seems to be the direction of travel that they seem more confident and more prepared to raise those dividend levels back to um, where they were pre-COVID. So I think we can take that as a positive. That prospective yield gives them, on, on the based on the current share price, uh, of a yield around about 7%, which is obviously not unattractive. Indeed not. So it's been slow but steady, the kind of revival in, the, in some of these commercial property trusts, not in the specialist areas that have done well through the pandemic. Um, so the discounts are, are narrowing, are they not? I mean, they've come in quite a fair way for some of them not so much for others. How would you describe the overall picture at the moment before we see the Q1 NAVs, that is? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Discounts have narrowed in. So just to put some numbers on that. So if you look at the uh, UK commercial property funds on a 12-month basis, uh, they've probably averaged about 23%. And currently the snapshot is 12%. So quite a marked contraction of discounts. However, you're absolutely right. There's a huge range still. When I look across the piece, I mean, we've got one or two, even on those kind of more generalist UK commercial property mandates that are trading on premium ratings. LXI REIT would be a, a case in point, Custodian REIT, another one. But then you look at Shredder Real Estate on a 
30% discount. You look at uh, BMO commercial property, 33% discount. So there's quite a range uh, of, of ratings across this uh, subsector. Very good. Well, we only one more topic to talk about this week. Those are all the results we have this week. It has been a short week and not as many uh, announcements as we normally get. But it's uh, given you an opportunity, Simon. Your team has put out its uh, monthly review and you have some interesting things to say about private equity, which is a sector that interests me a lot. I look at it a lot and I... Um, I can't always make up my mind whether I think they're, you know, interesting or not interesting. What one can say, though, is that they do persistently, have persistently since the global financial crisis, on the whole, traded at big discounts. So what are what are your thoughts about the private equity sector at the moment? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a good question. I think it is a very interesting area of the investment company sector. I mean, uh, you mentioned the financial crisis. You go back to 2008-9. I mean, that was a terrible experience for this area of the marketplace. Many of the funds were hugely derated. Uh, a number really didn't manage to come through or had to rely on strate- strategic sales of some of their assets or dilutive rights issues. I mean, it was pretty desperate stuff because effectively they'd overcommitted and their balance sheets weren't strong enough. But that was then, since that period, you're right, the sector has kind of rebuilt itself. We've seen a number of names fall by the wayside. And indeed, we've still got a number of private equity funds who are in what we call managed wind down. So on their way out, electro private equity, Dunedin Enterprise would be two examples of that. But those names that remain um, are actually performing very well. A few are actually trading on quite strong ratings. So HG Capital Trust, I think that's a name that we've talked about before. And they're actually issuing shares on a, on a premium rating at the moment. And there are a number not too far behind them. But equally, there are those in the middle ground that are performing well. They're clearly their balance sheets are strong enough to, to come through whatever the, the market conditions might be, and yet find themselves on double-digit discounts. Uh, and you could look at, in that space at things like Standard Life Private Equity, BMO Private Equity, ICG Enterprise, to name but three. And it's a question of what are the merits of these vehicles. It's worth noting that private equity as an asset class is a very expensive asset class. Um, so it might not necessarily be the kind of hedge fund two and 20 type fees that we, we've talked about in weeks gone by, but still private equity does cost. And there's a kind of L'Oreal element to this, you know, is it worth it? Uh, and I think the simple answer is when public markets were so strong, particularly those growth mandates, then perhaps people felt they didn't need to take the illiquidity risk that's obviously present in, in, in private equity, that perhaps, you know, you just put your money on Bailey Gifford, Scottish mortgage or, or whatever it might be. But I think as the market um, has uh, kind of settled down a bit, then I think people are looking again at these private equity names. They're looking at their performance records. And I think they have a significant advantage over public markets. And I think it was demonstrated last year that even during that market crisis, having companies, private companies in your portfolio that can you know, do things away from the, the spotlight of public markets, they can raise additional capital, uh, they can change around their operating practices I think really does put them in good stead. And I think there's been a big change in the private equity industry in the last few years away from just financial engineering. These are not just kind of geared plays. There's a huge emphasis now on on operational improvements. And that's a message that's coming through very strongly when you talk to the, the, the investors in private equity. Yeah, so I think it has it definitely has changed. And they've learned, I hope, from the experiences of the global financial crisis when, when as you say, many of them were overcommitted and uh, it was a bit of a bloodbath, frankly, when, uh, when that hit, and they went to massive discounts, a lot of them. Yes, you, you raise an interesting point there, which is, I mean, as you see, you know, there are trusts like Scottish Mortgage, which you can invest in, which are increasingly buying unlisted companies, at least, not necessarily traditional private equity situations where you come in and try and 
maybe uh, you know develop or change a, a company that's already existing. So you know you could ask yourself, well, why if I can if I can get some exposure to that through Scottish Mortgage, which charges you know thirty forty basis points a year, why do I need two and twenty or whatever whatever the figures are for uh, a private equity fund? I mean that's a, I suppose a question. But uh, as you say, you know the ones that survive, a lot of them are very interesting, and they certainly. Um, uh, have a decent track record, as you say. So it's 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 interesting. Maybe it's just a long institutional memory. Do you think? Who would be the typical investor in a in a listed private equity fund? I mean, it's going to be mainly the the usual suspects, is it not? Or do they have a different shareholder base? It depends. Is is the answer? So if you look at some of the kind of high profile names, you know, take HD Capital Trust for instance, and. You know, many people would see that as a kind of best in class, particularly amongst those kind of direct private equity names. That's going to have a significant following. It's got a market cap of 1.5 billion now. This is a substantial company that, as I think we talked about a few weeks ago when it had its results out, that's kind of specialised in boring tech. It's kind of software for accountants. Um, but these are kind of defensive growth companies, very cash generative, and, and the numbers are very strong for HD Capital Trust. But then when you look at those more fund of funds, um, and again, the Harbour Vest, the Pantheons, BMOs in there as well, Standard Life, that's a slightly more difficult story in terms of you're getting a far more broader exposure in those portfolios. So you haven't got a company uh, like Visma in HG Capital that's a big chunk of the of the net assets. In those kind of more fund of funds, you know, to have a 1%, 2 3% position is, is pretty punchy. They, they're exposed to literally hundreds, or in the case of Harbour, it's probably thousands of companies, frankly. So you're buying the asset cars. And I think that, in theory, should appear particularly to wealth managers you know, who can make an allocation. The issue that I think a lot of wealth managers have with those type of companies, or even this whole kind of asset class, is that, again, it's the cost, it's the expense. There's been a huge scrutiny of look-through costs across the financial services industry, and, and, and obviously rightly so. But unfortunately, private equity funds don't fare well if you're just looking on a, on a cost basis because of not just the kind of base fees, but because of the performance fees that invariably follow. So I think for a number of investors, institutional and uh, professional investors, that that becomes a bit of a hurdle for them to overcome. But, you know, I'm saying all this, discounts have narrowed in. So if you look at that fund of funds, the private equity fund of funds subsector, it's on average about a 13% discount or so at the moment. Now, that compares with 25% over the previous 12 months. And we have seen a significant uh, you know, positive re-rating so far this year. You know, so Standard Life Private Equity is actually on about 11% discount at the moment. That compares with 26% average. Uh, you know, Pantheon on a 13% discount. Harbourvest on a 12% discount. So although the, they are still double-digit discounts, this is narrower than we have seen them in the past few years. And you mentioned, obviously, HG Capital has been able to issue shares because it trades at a premium. I mean, I guess some of these private equity trusts would love to get to a similar position, would they not? There are difficulties around private equity actually issuing new shares all the time, though, are there not? Do you think that's uh, that's in their mind at all? Do you think that's what they'd be looking to achieve? I mean, we know we talked about the hedge funds trying to bring their discounts in uh, and get uh, the ability to raise more money uh, at those handsome fees of theirs. But uh, do, you th- do you think there's scope for, for other private equity trusts at some point in theory to get to that to get that level? Were they, were they trading at premiums before the crisis or not? Some of them were, yeah. You take Standard Life, for instance, that, that consistently traded at a, a premium rating back in the mid-noughties uh, on, the, on the back of very strong performance numbers. So yes is the answer. They, they'd love to see their discounts narrow to the point where they, they flipped onto premium ratings. But you make a good point. We're always looking at a slightly out of date 
uh, NAVs for this asset class for, for the obvious reasons that it takes time for valuations to come through. You certainly wouldn't feel comfortable banging out new shares on a 1% or 2% premium. You'd want a bit of a margin and, and HD Capital finds itself on a you know, 10, 11, 12% premium at the moment. So there's sufficient margin in that. But yes, essentially they would. And, and it's worth noting, we're talking about some of these more uh, kind of traditional private equity names, but there's also the growth capital subsector as well that's really just sprung up in the last few years. So, uh, you know, we mentioned Australia UK public private uh, already today, and that is part of that uh, category. But then also we've got Chrysalis in there, um, which raised £300 million recently. Uh, we've got Shehalian in there who are out fundraising at the moment and, and the new fund Shredder British Opportunities as well. And there does seem to be a lot of investor appetite for those kind of names. They're doing something slightly different, to be fair, for the, the, the kind of more mainstream private equity names. But to take a step back, I think people like the idea of private companies. I think they're prepared to take the liquidity risk that comes with that. And they recognise that investment companies are, are the appropriate structure through which to access the asset class. Um, because of the closed-end nature, it's the right way to go. And I think as a diversifying people's portfolios, uh, you know, it does have its merits. Yeah, it's an interesting issue. And I think uh, one that's well worth uh, keeping an eye on as we go through this year. Okay, so that I think is all we have time for this week. It's been a short week, but uh, it's been an interesting one, as always. Always good to talk to you, Simon. Uh, I might mention also just at this point that um, I'd like to thank those of you who've joined the Moneymakers Circle, which is an additional thing that I've been producing in the last uh, three months. We got to the end of our first quarter. And uh, if you're interested in more, you know, some more background on investment trusts and the markets generally, and indeed to find Simon's views and, and other analysts' views and professional investors' views on topics of the day, we're starting a series uh, running those in the Moneymakers Circle. So uh, if you're interested in that, uh, I would uh, obviously commend that to you. But that's all we have time for this week. I look forward to talking again next week, Simon. And uh, thanks, as always, for your insights and uh, astute comments. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. The website also has details of how to join the Moneymakers Circle, our premium content subscription service, offering more interviews, portfolio updates and market commentary. Thank you for listening and please keep safe in these difficult times.